This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. When it comes to geopolitics and the world today, there's a lot going on. Just think about it. Ukraine, NATO and Russia. Then there's China's threatening stance towards Taiwan. And in the US, the big question is, could Donald Trump become president again? And how would that change international relations? Well, for answers, let's turn to a leading conservative foreign policy figure in Washington, who served in every Republican administration since the 1980s. I'm talking about John Bolton. Among other official positions, Bolton has served as the US ambassador to the United Nations in the George W. Bush administration and national security advisor to President Donald Trump. John Bolton is also author of several prominent books, including The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. He's in Australia this week as a guest of the Centre for Independent Studies. That's a Sydney public policy research organisation I head. John, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you. Glad to be in Australia. And, and well, welcome back to Australia. You like it here, don't you? It's a great place. Now, although you're no longer in government, you have Secret Service protection. Tell us why. Well, the uh, the uh, threat from Iran to a number of present and former uh, U.S. government officials and private citizens was such that back in December, President Biden authorized it again. And it's uh, it's a mark of the nature of the regime in Tehran that, uh, that they're prepared to engage not in uh, state sponsorship of terrorism, but outright state terrorism against the United States. And uh, I feel in very safe hands with the Secret Service, but it's a mark of why negotiating with Iran uh, over their nuclear weapons program is a fool's errand. Well, I was going to ask you, does Iran's plot to assassinate you, especially after the Salman Rushdie hit, make it more difficult for the Biden administration to justify resuming those talks for the Iranian nuclear deal? Well, it should, but uh, the, the, the Biden people have been pursuing getting back into the 2015 Iran nuclear deal like uh, they're going after the Holy Grail. So I think that, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, since it was a bad deal to begin with, hasn't gotten any better with age. And in fact, uh, Biden has made even more concessions to Iran. Nonetheless, they likely will go back in it. But it will be the subject of enormous debate in Washington this fall. Let's talk about Donald Trump. You served as national security advisor to him in 2018, 2019. You resigned. It was a big controversial story. I think that some of your longtime friends were a bit disappointed in you, particularly when you published your memoir so soon afterwards. Uh, of course, the old left, which of course has hated your guts, they started to <laughs> like you. <laughs> Did you see the irony in all that? <laughs> well, there's there's plenty of irony in it, but you know, it shows that one of the distorting factors that Trump has had in American politics, that it's people lining up, are you with Trump or against Trump? And I think that's a very dangerous thing to happen. I think in politics, you pursue philosophy and policies. You can agree with uh, person A on this policy, but agree on another. Uh, but if, if it's simply uh, a loyalty test to a person as opposed to a philosophy, uh, that, that's potentially very dangerous. And that brings us to Liz Cheney. Now, of course, uh, her landslide defeat in the Republican contest uh, to be the House candidate for Wyoming in November's uh, midterm elections, that resounding failure is still reverberating across the US political landscape. Now, Cheney, of course, had been among a small minority of Republican lawmakers to vote to impeach Donald Trump 
In the wake of the January 6 riot, she's refused to play along with the pretense that the 2020 election was stolen. What does Liz Cheney's landslide defeat What does that say about the Republican Party nationally? Well, I actually don't think it says too much. I mean, Trump picked her out of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach him in 2021. He picked her out uh, as the special target, and he prevailed. There's no doubt about it. Uh, But Wyoming is a sparsely populated state. It's very conservative, and, uh, and and Trump was able to mobilize effectively against Liz. Now, she may well run for president, run for the mm. nomination in 2024, going after Trump in particular. So this is this is all part of the battle for the for the soul of the party. Uh, I'm actually fairly optimistic that uh, the Trump support is declining. At least I was until this Justice Department uh, subpoena this uh, past couple of weeks, uh, which has caused a resurgence in his support. But in terms of what people think about, they really, they want to see a new face in 2024. That's what my super PACs polling shows within the Republican Party. Of course, though, you mentioned, I mean, there's a large coalition of Republicans who want to stop Trump. They don't want him to be serving a second term. But there was a large group in 2016 who sought to deny Trump the nomination and the presidency, and the never-Trumpers failed comprehensively. What's different this time? Well, in in 2016, Trump very successfully eliminated one opponent after another, and uh, and by winning primaries and caucuses, not with over 50% of the vote, but with 30, 35%, well ahead, let's say, of eight or 10 other challengers, he was able to get the nomination. I think all of the potential Republican candidates understand that dynamic uh, uh, and, and hope to avoid it in 2024. But right now, we've got between, I would say, 12 and 15 people who could well run for the nomination. Mm. But in a, in a crowded field, that would help Trump, surely. Well, that's the danger, exactly. Again, as in 2016, he could slip between the cracks. And uh, uh, the, the best you can say now is at least people realize he did it before and are alert to the danger. Now, many Republicans, and you've been a Republican since, uh, am I right in saying Barry Goldwater's right. ill-fated 1964 campaign right. against LBJ? Right. They say it's silly to take Trump too seriously, but surely his failure to see the difference between his interests and the rule of law is no joke. Well, I think it's uh, it's it it should be fatal to any notion he has of getting back uh, in, into into active politics himself. Again, before this subpoena, I believe Trump would not actually run for the nomination. Right. He would talk about it incessantly. He might even declare his candidacy, but he wouldn't actually run. What what he he fears losing, and and being called a loser for Trump is the single worst thing you can get. So I think he ultimately wanted to be a kingmaker, but. Uh, there's a kind of tribal reaction that Biden Justice Department goes after Trump in a way they never went after Hillary Clinton. And uh, people think he's being uh, uh, discriminated against, in effect. I can understand the cult of the successful leader. Many of us can. But what we can't understand is the cult of the unsuccessful leader. Trump did lose in 2020. He's been impeached twice. Now, there were no Nixonians after 1974, There were no Carterites after 1980, and yet Trump, according to all the available opinion polling, still is the most popular choice to run for president in 2024. Well, barely. Different surveys show different things. The last survey I took before the subpoena had Trump 33, DeSantis 31, and a series of others in single digits. The reason I think Trump gathers support is that when he becomes the target 
uh, of the Biden administration, of the left in America, people rally around him. It's a tribal kind of thing. Uh, but, but having said that, they know his flaws. His real support within the Republican Party, in my view, his actual base is maybe 15 to 20 percent of the party. Okay, just in terms of those former Republican colleagues who say they will support Trump come hell or high water, what's your message to them? Well, if you want to lose, be my guest. That's that's not particularly what I want to do. Uh, he cost us the House of Representatives during the course of his incumbency. He cost us the United States Senate. He cost us the White House. He cost us in state and local elections. And uh, the, the, this subpoena, I mean, if you're a real conspiracy theorist, you think the Democrats did it to bring Trump back into the center of American politics. Uh, I think it's more a question of naivete on the part of the Justice Department. But nonetheless, if the election is about Donald Trump this November, Republicans will not do as well as they should have. And that perhaps explains why many Democrats, uh, big donors, are supporting uh, candidates who are aligned with Trump in the House and the Senate. Well, you know, if Republicans were trying to interfere in the Democratic primaries to pick the weakest candidates, the the media would be trumpeting dirty tricks. (laughs) You know, uh, you can just imagine what they would be saying. But when the Democrats try to influence Republican primaries to get what they think would be the weakest candidates, well, that's just fine, including when they back people who believe in Donald Trump. That's how hypocritical this is. This is Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines on ABC's RN. My guest is John Bolton, former President Trump's national security advisor. John, let's turn to Ukraine. It's fighting back and hard in, of all places, Crimea, which, of course, has been occupied by Russian forces since 2014. How far could the Ukrainian counteroffensive go? Well, that's uh, that's the, the race we're in now to see who can gain the most territory. The Russians have been slowly grinding out territorial gains. They now uh, control roughly 25 percent of Ukraine's territory, maybe a little bit more. But the U.S., Britain and other NATO uh, allies have armed the Ukrainians with increasingly sophisticated weapons, uh, high Mars, the uh, highly mobile uh, rocket systems, uh, anti-radiation uh, air-to-surface missiles to hit the uh, Russian defenses, a series of other uh, sophisticated weapons that uh, that really have proven themselves in battle, javelin anti-tank missiles for some time now. And I think that's enabled the Ukrainian forces to do very well. But I also think that both sides here may be near exhaustion in terms of casualties. The Russians have suffered casualties beyond comprehension in the West. I think it just shows their calculus about the value for human life is not not what ours is. But while the Ukrainians have been very silent about their total casualties, I don't think we should uh, take that to mean they've been light. I think they've been very heavy. So we're, we're in a race against exhaustion in a certain sense here. And uh, the most likely outcome, though, is that the war will simply continue because there's no diplomatic advantage, certainly to the Ukraine side, to bring it to a halt. And the significance of the the assassination of the daughter of the Putin ally this week? Well, this is a a wild card, to say the least. Uh, Already, the two sides have chosen uh, who the perpetrator was. The Ukrainians, based on what information, I don't know, say it was an inside job at the Kremlin. The Kremlin has said it was the Ukrainians. Uh, I think uh, the, the truth will be hard to discern here, but I think what it means is Russia will now find a way, in their view, uh, to try and uh, punish Ukraine, try and get a, a, a comparable attack against them. Why would it be an inside job in Russia? Well, the Ukrainian argument is that uh, there's a lot of dissent inside Russia to the to the invasion, and there certainly is some, but I don't think it's uh, in Putin's inner circle. Okay. 
Now, during your last appearance on this program earlier this year, you warned about the dire consequences for NATO and Europe should Putin succeed in conquering Ukraine. What are the consequences if he fails or if he's held to a stalemate? Well, I think uh, from Putin's point of view, he he can still take the diplomatic initiative. In fact, I'm quite worried about that uh, in the period through the end of October. If if uh, Putin's troops are still advancing on net, taking more territory than they're losing, even if by a small amount, I'm very worried that uh, that he will announce one fine day out of the blue that we've achieved our objectives mm. in Ukraine. We're calling a halt to offensive military operations. We demand Ukraine call a similar halt, let's negotiate a ceasefire. I'm worried that many of our European friends will say, thank God, let's get this war over with. Zelensky won't want to do that. The Ukrainians won't want to do it, but they may not be in a position to resist. And any ceasefire line at that point would become the new Russia-Ukraine border. What do you make of the argument that the West, Washington, Brussels, should make it clear that there can be no return to normality in Russia as long as Putin is in the Kremlin? Well, I think I think there's another way to do it that doesn't tweak the Russians quite so hard. I think to forestall this potential diplomatic initiative by Putin, what I would say is we need to make clear the sanctions against Russia as a whole will remain in, in place and perhaps even increase until their troops are off Ukrainian soil. So until that happens, uh, the, 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 the squeeze on Russia will continue. Now, the squeeze is not as tight as it could be, that's for sure, and we need to improve it. But I would not indicate any willingness to back off the sanctions. If the squeeze was tighter as you wish and Washington and Brussels defeats Russia in any meaningful sense, What's Moscow likely to do? Surely they would want to wreck Ukraine's electrical grid, perhaps even turn to nuclear weapons, John. Well, I don't I don't think nuclear weapons are a prospect uh, uh, at this point. I think that would take uh, really massive Russian defeat. I mean, the Russian forces in Ukraine fleeing toward the Russian border, maybe Ukrainian forces even crossing the Russian border. I don't see that happening. I would not underestimate uh, the strength of Putin's support inside Russia. There are many people who agree with his assessment over 15 years ago that the breakup of the Soviet Union was illegitimate, that it was ripped apart, not because they want to see the Soviet Union come back. They want to see the Russian empire come back. Uh, And the sanctions, uh, while they've imposed cost on Russia, have not been as tight as they can be. You say they want the Russian empire back, but William Burns, now head of the CIA, he was a U.S. ambassador in Russia in April 2008. I say April 2008 because that was the time of the Bucharest NATO summit when the idea of Ukraine being part of NATO was on the cards. He made the point then that Ukraine in NATO is the, quote, brightest of all red lines for all Russian leaders. So in other words, Russia's response here is reactive to provocative Western policy. How would you respond to that? Well, I think that's completely backwards of what actually happened here. Eastern Europeans wanted to join NATO because they feared uh, at some future point coming back under Russian subjugation. NATO didn't deliberately expand east. The Eastern Europeans clamored to get on board, and I think uh, they were right to do so, and we were right to take them The captive in. nations. Yeah. If, if we had followed what George W. Bush said in April of 2008 and brought Ukraine in, this invasion may never have happened. Remember, the Russians, Soviets before them have never crossed a NATO border. August 2022, your critics such as Noam Chomsky on the left, Fox News' Tucker Carlson on the right. (laughs) That's quite a crowd we've got gathered here, John. 
they would say you, John Bolton, are talking about defeating a rival great power in a war that the Russians see as existential and that has thousands of nuclear weapons aimed at Europe and the US. All for what? Well, the, the issue here is not a war that we planned. Uh, this was this was the second Russian invasion of Crimea, first being in 2014. And I would say whatever mistakes were made before that, the biggest mistake was the U.S. and Europe in 2014 allowing Russia to take at that point about 10 percent of Ukraine's territory, in, including particularly the Crimea, mm. and really responding with only incidental sanctions. That was a signal to Putin and the Kremlin uh, that they could get away with it again. But won't focusing on defeating Russia hurt the U.S. ability to pivot to Asia? This is a very important issue for Australians. And if it hurts the U.S. ability to pivot to Asia, as Barack Obama put it in the Australian parliament in November 2011, doesn't that make it harder to contain China and thus easier for China to invade Taiwan? Well, you know, the, there's no doubt in my mind that China is the existential threat of the 21st century for the West as a whole. There's no doubt about it. And, and I don't think really any, any serious argument that they're not the existential threat. However, from the perspective of the United States as a global power, any place that we recede is a place somebody else will advance contrary to our interest. And that includes China. China and Russia have formed a kind of entente here. Uh, their interests uh, overlap enough to do that. It's not a real axis yet, not yet, it, but it could be with others like Iran. So this notion of the pivot itself is a big mistake. The United States is everywhere because our friends and our interests are everywhere. It requires more effort than we've uh, put forward since the end of the Cold War, but but that's uh, that's something that real political leaders are going to have to explain to the American people. John Bolton was U.S. ambassador to the U.N. during the George W. Bush administration, and he's author of Surrender is Not an Option, Defending America at the United Nations and Abroad. That was in 2007. John, the U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent trip to Taiwan, obviously it's attracted a lot of controversy. Many people in Australia uh, fear it might upend the one-China policy that has served the regional peace for the past half century. Your response? Well, I think Pelosi was right to go, and I think uh, uh, perhaps here in Australia there's as much confusion about what the one-China policy is as there in the United States. I can say emphatically the one-China policy does not mean that we agree that Beijing should control Taiwan. That's not what the Shanghai communique said. It's not what subsequent communiques said and various assurances and other things that were given to Taiwan. The fact is, on Taiwan, the people have decided they want to be an independent country. And in terms of their identification over the last 30 years, they see themselves as Taiwanese. They do not see themselves as Chinese. Except that the George W. Bush administration, in which you served at State and the UN, it took a different approach to Taiwan. Uh, here's what Kishore Mabubani, the former Singaporean Mandarin and senior diplomat, this is what Mabubani told me last week. George W. Bush administration was not a soft administration. It was a tough, strong administration dominated by many neocons in the foreign policy-making apparatus. Just go back and study how George W. Bush handled the Taiwan issue in the U.S.-China relationship. At that time, Taiwan had an even more fiercely pro-independent leader called Chen Shui-bian, and I can tell you that the Bush administration put tremendous pressure 
on the Chen Shui Bian administration to ensure that the administration did not in any way derail US-China relations. If the George W. Bush administration can show such sensitivity on the Taiwan issue, it shows that basically American diplomats have lost something in their management of China, and they're walking away from policies that have worked well for the United States in the past. That's Kishore Mabulbani on RN last week. John Bolton, why can't Washington just stick to the status quo in Taiwan? Well, I think the Bush administration policy on Taiwan, with all due respect to my former boss, was mistaken. I think uh, the the State Department then was listening to the wrong people about how to handle Taiwan. It's not Taiwan that's provoking this crisis. It's the determination in China to subjugate Taiwan as they in recent years have subjugated Hong Kong, contrary to the joint Sino-British declaration on the handoff of uh, Hong Kong back to Taiwan as they've suppressed the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Uh, it's really Chinese aggressiveness that's uh, that's the issue here. And the people of Taiwan have made a decision. They don't want a one country, two systems approach. They want a separate democratic government, which they have. Now, people can say, oh, come on, they're all Chinese. Well, some those same people would have to say, you people in Australia shouldn't be independent. You're really British, and so are you Americans. But the two powers that matter, the conventional wisdom in Beijing and Washington, notwithstanding Joe Biden's many gaffes on the subject, the conventional wisdom is that the U.S. interest on this issue is best served by maintaining a status quo that balances de facto autonomy with formal ambiguity of status for Taiwan. Look, I think if you're uh, Henry Kissinger, then you can manage the concept of strategic ambiguity. We are short on Henry Kissinger's these days. Common sense says to be clear on a matter that's in your strategic interest is the way to avoid confusion and possible hostilities. And I think the doctrine of strategic ambiguity has served its purpose, and we ought to be clear to China that we consider Taiwan an independent country. I I would have done this 20 years ago. I think we should exchange full diplomatic uh, recognition, uh, embassies, the the whole nine yards, and so should other countries. What do you think all this means for Australia when your former Trump administration colleague uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was in Sydney in the winter of 2019. I put to him uh, observations by the distinguished intellectual Hugh White from the Australian National University, and he says that China buys double what our next largest customer, Japan, buys from us. This was in 2019. And he predicts that the Chinese economy will grow much bigger than America's in coming years. As a result, this is Hugh White's argument, Canberra would be unwise to support Washington in any stoush with China over Taiwan that the US probably can't win. How do you respond to Hugh White? Well, I don't believe China's economic statistics to begin with. I think they've been cooked for a long time. Uh, I don't I don't think that uh, that that you simply look at the numbers and say that China can't be defeated here. I think if you look along China's Indo-Pacific periphery from Japan all the way through Southeast Asia to India, that the countries there uh, don't look forward to the day when mm-hmm. China exercises hegemony over them. They 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 want their independence too. And I think uh, this is something that. Uh, It's not a Cold War, it's not ideological, but it recalls the situation in Europe after World War II. Are you going to be independent or would you rather be under the thumb of China? Well, the Chinese Communist Party leadership is lurching from crisis to crisis. A troubled economy that you mentioned have had a devastating heat wave this northern summer. 
the demographic challenges, and that's not to mention Taiwan. Is President Xi in trouble? I don't think he's personally in trouble, but I think he's following a model that will that will cause uh, big trouble for the regime down the road. He's re-centralizing power, re-centralizing political power, economic power to solidify his personal control. But that will uh, have the effect of killing the goose that laid the golden eggs. The Chinese economic boom since Deng Xiaoping, I think, is now in real jeopardy. All of these internal uh, challenges that uh, you mentioned that China faces, uh, and, and in particular, the aging population, mm. which which is going to cause, since these birth rates uh, have an effect 30 and 40 years down the road, cause China's population overall to begin to decline. My guest is John Bolton, who's with the Foundation for American Security and Freedom in Washington. He's in Australia this week as a guest of the Centre for Independent Studies. John, let's conclude with the end of the unipolar moment. As you well know, 30 years ago, Charles Krauthammer, the distinguished columnist, coined the term to describe America's place in the post-Cold War era. Is there not less of a domestic appetite for America to play the kind of dominant role on the world stage that you've espoused, given the, the success of Trump, I mean, he did win in 2016, and even the success of someone like Bernie Sanders, yeah. John Bolton? Well, you know, the unipolar moment comes and goes. We had a unipolar moment in 1945, too, because the world was devastated after World War II, but people, other countries came back. Uh, we, we had a unipolar moment when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, other countries have moved in to take its place. Uh, but uh, if it simply means that uh, that the world has grown more complicated, I, I think that's something America needs to take into account. What our problem has been is a lack of political leaders who explain to the United States that we are protected most at home when we have a strong international presence. I think the American people in their gut understand that. And that's why if you look at the reaction in America to the Trump-Biden withdrawal from Afghanistan and the catastrophic way it was carried out, they know it was a strategic Mistake. You say it's lack of good political leaders, but are you overlooking America's weaknesses? Let me put this to you. In the past year, there's been the following. You mentioned the humiliating US withdrawal from Afghanistan, a failure to defend and secure America's southern border as two million migrants from all over the world poured across, a surge in crimes of violence, shootings, murders, militias in the major cities, an inflation rate not seen in 40 years, massive deficits and debt, and that's not to mention the toxic polarisation in Washington. Given all this, do you really think Americans still have the stomach to play a global leadership role in Europe, the Persian Gulf and the Indo-Pacific? I, I think they do if they have leaders who are willing to level with them. Uh, it would also help not to elect Democrats that are spending the country in, into bankruptcy. Uh, I think 2024 is going to be uh, a critical year and uh, and may well tell us the answer to that question. I'm, I'm optimistic, uh, actually, that among the Republicans running for president, we're going to find somebody who has this larger vision and will, will come to victory. You know better than I do that the demands of Europe to counter Russia and Asia to counter China they require very different military capabilities. One is land-based, boots on the ground. The other is amphibious and air power. That's a big military build-up that America would have to pay for to do both. Well, I think uh, there, there's no doubt we need increases 
in the defense budget. This, this is still part of the hangover from the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 when the peace dividend was declared and the U.S. and many other countries dramatically cut their militaries. We still haven't uh, recovered from that. But, but the fact is, I think, that, uh, that this challenge is one that we can easily meet, and uh, it's just a question of having uh, enough uh, willpower in, in domestic affairs. What about the internal divisions within the United States? Just in the last few months, there have been several books published by academics and journalists, How Civil Wars Start, that's by Barbara Walter, uh, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden and the Battle for America's Future, that's by Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, The Next Civil War by the Canadian Stephen Marsh. <laughs> I have to ask, and this is a way to conclude this interview, does America face the biggest political and constitutional crisis since the 1860s Civil War? I don't think the situation in America is even remotely close to what happened before the Civil War when the Union broke up, broke up. So uh, unless these liberals want to secede, and we'd have to look at each uh, each application to secede on its own merits, uh, it's just it's it's uh, it's just exaggeration that really contributes to the problem doesn't help find a way to solve it. John, great to have you back on RN and in Australia. Glad to be here. That's John Bolton, former President Trump's National Security Advisor and US Ambassador to the UN in the George W. Bush administration. He's author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir. Up next, will Australia weather the global economic storm? Well, the global economy is reeling, and no wonder. Just think of the pandemic's disruption of supply chains, the COVID lockdowns in China, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the energy crisis in Europe, the very high inflation. It's about 6.5% in advanced economies, 9.5% in emerging economies. And the US, technically speaking at least, is in a recession. And yet... Against this grim background, post-lockdown Australia is enjoying a jobs miracle. 3.4% unemployment, that's a near 50-year low, and the economy is humming along. However, as the RBA raises rates to rein in 6% inflation, can we weather the global storm? Let's turn to our panel. Joanne Masters is Chief Economist at Baron Joey, and John Keogh is a columnist and economics editor at the Australian Financial Review. John, Joe, welcome back to RN. Great to join you. Good to be with you, Tom. Joe, why do you think uh, our nation is in a better position compared with much of the OECD? Well, partly we're in a better position right now. Uh, our economic cycle is a little bit behind that that we're seeing in the US and in Europe and indeed even in New Zealand. We started hiking rates later, for example, but there are also another couple of factors that are supporting the economy here that are relatively unique. Part of the reason that we're seeing recession or stagflation in other economies is because we've suffered a food and energy shock. And of course, Australia is both a food and energy exporter. So our external sector is going to provide us with some relative support. And then like some other economies, our household sector its balance sheets are in relatively good shape. And that means that we've got a little bit of time before those households respond to higher interest rates. John, are there other factors at play uh, in explaining Australian infl inflation? Obviously, 
a surge in export earnings, as Joe just mentioned, but are there other factors at play? Yeah, I think also Australia, to add to what Joe mentioned, we haven't had the sort of hot wages breakout that we're seeing in other economies like the US and even New Zealand just across the Tasman. Uh, wage growth so far has been more uh, contained. Now, that's not to say we don't risk a wages breakout like we're seeing in other uh, economies around the world. Uh, we've got a very tight labour market now, 3.4% unemployment. And, you know, one of the things the RBA wants to try and keep a lid on, they want healthy wage growth, but they don't want too hot a wage growth. And that's something they're going to be paying very, very close close attention to, particularly with the jobless rate so low. And inflation, as Joe mentioned earlier, is behind much of Europe, America and mm. Britain. What's the Australian inflation tip to rise to by Christmas? Joe? Well, at Baron Joey, we're expecting the peak to be in the December quarter of this year. Um, in our last forecast round, we've put in a number of 7.2%. Uh, obviously, we'll revise that in the next few weeks, as most economists will once we get the national accounts. But we are looking at a peak inflation rate of somewhere between 7 and 8%, most likely in the fourth quarter of this year. And a lot of that will depend on where petrol prices land. If we look at core inflation, which is, of course, what drives monetary policy in the Reserve Bank uh, and is really a better indicator of ongoing or long-term inflation pressures. There we've got a 5.5% peak at the end of this year. So the RBA has hiked interest rates by 1.5% in the past three months, or in other words, three consecutive rises of 50 basis points, which is quite extraordinary. Does that mean we should be expecting additional tightening over the next few months? John? Yeah, absolutely. I think the RBA is going to keep tightening monetary policy and we're probably likely to see another 50 basis point or 0.5 percentage point rise in September, given the unemployment rate has recently come down to 3.4%. And there are signs that wages are really starting to pick up as well in the current quarter that we're in. So uh, I think markets are pricing in a sort of cash rate peaking towards about 3% by the end of this year or early next year. Uh, so they do still have quite a bit more tightening to go. Now, they want to get to what they know at least as the neutral uh, rate. Now, that's where monetary policy is neither stimulatory nor contractionary. But the tricky thing about this, Tom, is they don't actually know what it is. They're only guessing. And they say, we think it might be at least 2.5% because that's the middle of the inflation target. But it could be uh, higher than that. Uh, it could be quite a bit higher than that. It might even be a little bit lower than that because households are carrying a hell of a lot of debt these days. So they're a lot more sensitive to interest rate rises. And let's remember the inflation surge underscores just how much the export uh, forecasters, including, well, especially the RBA, they got inflation horribly wrong. Right, Joe? Well, I think we all got inflation horribly wrong, to be fair. Um, but uh, it's it, to be honest, it's been a pretty tough couple of years as a forecaster. And we only have a certain amount of tools at our disposal, right? So as economists, as, as you know, and as John would appreciate, we, we often fall back on our econometric modelling. 
But the reality is, and I think what's been laid bare in the last few months, is that only tells us what the average historical response has been to, to anything, whether that's a rate hike or, or any other sort of stimulus or impact on the economy. Look, inflation's headed higher. There's nothing we can do about inflation in the next few months. That's the other point. You know, monetary policy works with the famous long and variable lag. So inflation's going to get higher before it gets lower and real wages are going to continue to fall for some time yet. And it's a really challenging economic environment and there's no silver bullet to this. There's no easy way out. Someone's going to have to wear some pain. Why would the experts so badly wrong, John. I mean, you know, Economics 101, I mean, if you think of Milton Freeman, for example, the Nobel laureate, he would have argued, I mean, he died in 2006, but he would have argued and the monetarists would have argued that central banks and governments, by pump priming up demand, they failed to see early enough how supply side problems were acute, mm. not temporary, and that would force inflationary spillovers. Where were those voices in the debate last year? Yeah, look, I think during the pandemic, everyone was focusing on the big downside risks. We thought the economies were going to go into a deep protracted recession that was going to be a scarring of the labour market, so people long-term unemployed for years and, and big social costs. As it turned out, uh, the lockdowns were generally short and sharp and we rebounded out of them very quickly. And I think Everyone uh, underestimated the power of stimulus, not just central banks doing exotic stuff like buying um, securities on the asset markets, but also cutting rates to zero and in some cases negative in some jurisdictions. But more importantly, just the sheer size of the fiscal stimulus that governments pumped in. Now, the federal government spent over $300 billion here in Australia, and if you include the states, it got up towards um, half a trillion or $500 billion, and that is an enormous amount of money to be pumping into the economy over the space of a couple of years. And so once the economy opened up, the lockdowns ended, uh, there was just so much money sloshing around. And of course, uh, we get inflation, particularly with the supply side bottlenecks caused by China stop starting its economy. And, and then the energy price spike, of course, caused by the Ukraine and Russia war. So both a fiscal and a monetary policy overreach. Joe, do we need more transparency from the RBA? When we look at how the Reserve Bank exited some of those unconventional policies that John mentioned, uh, it wasn't perhaps as smooth as the bank themselves had hoped for and certainly not smooth for those of us working in financial markets. If we think about uh, the end of the forward guidance um, and also, of course, yield curve control. So in that sense, I think having a bit more transparency would be helpful. It would um, help the Reserve Bank have more opportunity to signal when there's a slight shift in bias rather than a binary change in policy. And that would help financial markets understand the reaction function of the bank a little bit better and perhaps smooth out some of the turmoil that we've seen in the last year. And would the markets welcome this, Joe? Oh, I think markets would unquestionably welcome it. I mean, there's an interesting debate going on, I guess, when we look at other central banks around the world. There's small nuances um, across all the major economies around how central banks communicate and, and what that looks like. You know, the Federal Reserve, for example, has the dot plots. Um, interesting question is whether that's improved their policy making or not. And I'm sure that'll be part of the RBA review, which is, of course, underway at the moment. 
And back to inflation, uh, the UK inflation is now 10% extraordinary. And according to the Bank of England, it's scheduled to go as high as 13%, which is just quite remarkable. John, um, we talk, all too often talk about rising interest rates to dampen growth. And obviously, there's a lot of um, emphasis on the central bank here to tighten monetary policy to rein in inflation. But what are the prospects of tighter fiscal policy that comes from the federal government? That is spending cuts to rein in inflation to get to the RBA's 2 to 3% target band. Certainly there's a case for it, I think. The, um, the government could be helping the RBA take some heat out of inflation, even though it is pr- primarily the role of the Reserve Bank. I think given we've had a lot of money pumped in from government, there's, a lot of that temporary spending has been turned off, but we've still got higher permanent spending to the tune of about 40 or $50 billion a year because of big increases in costs from things like aged care, the NDIS, healthcare, defence, even public interest costs as well for, on the debt. Look, I think the government in October is going to do some trimming. Uh, they talked about uh, a waste and rorts audit of the former government. And, 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 but reality is Labor at the election promised about $18 billion of extra spending over four years. So they're actually going to just have to trim to make way for that spending, let alone then making sort of um, net spending cuts. Um, they're not giving the big impression they're going to do a big repeat of, say, the late 1980s when you know Finance Minister Peter Walsh and Treasurer Paul Keating actually made substantial fiscal cuts or even the Costello-Howard first budget around 1996. I don't get that impression. You're on ABC's RN. I'm Tom Switzer and my guests are Joanne Masters from Baron Joey and John Keogh from the Financial Review. Uh, Joanne, the Financial Review's editorial page, which reflects the consensus view among so-called economic rationalists, Uh, They suggest that containing inflation requires, you know, not only interest rate rises, mortgage rates to rise from record lows, that's happening, but they say that wages for the bulk of the workforce needs to fall in real terms. Is that your sense too? Well, real wages are falling and they are expected to fall um, even on our numbers at least for another year or so. As I said earlier, I think the reality is unfortunately, that the economic outlook that we're facing requires some pain. Now, I guess at the end of the day, you want to try and share that pain across the economic agents that are in the economy and and households are a big one. You know, they make up two thirds of GDP spending in this economy. So at the end of the day, we do need to slow consumption growth. Uh, As John said before, Uh, consumption growth has been very much the driver of the recovery. Households have saved $260 billion just in cash. Um, Household wealth has gone up alongside house prices. Um, Household, the flow of savings is still very high. It's, you know, 11% of disposable income, roughly double what it was pre-pandemic. So we do need households to slow down their spending. And those that are really doing it tough, um, unfortunately, are going to have to lean on some of those savings that they've built through the pandemic. You have to rebalance the economy. That's how we bring inflation down. Uh, So increasing supply takes a long time, uh, which means that you need demand to come down a little bit to take that froth out of the economy. John, you mentioned uh, Peter Walsh, the Hawke government's finance minister who famously cut spending dramatically in the late mid to late 1980s. So, and this was all in the context of the um, the 1986 Banana Republic Aussie dollar shock. Mm. What's your sense of an inflation-fighting wage restraint policy to help entrench low unemployment? Well, there's no doubt people are going to have to suffer some real wage cuts in the short term because the alternative would be a lot worse. If we had wages 
chasing uh, very high inflation of six to eight percent, that would be a disaster because it would ultimately mean the RBA has got to push up interest rates a lot more aggressively, cause much higher unemployment. And so rather than just spreading the pain thinly uh, across uh, you know millions of workers, you concentrate very, very harsh and sharp pain across you know a few hundred thousand unemployed people, which uh, would be a real tragedy for them. Yeah, but it's a hard uh, message yeah. for a Labor government to sell. <laughs> yeah, and they've got a Jobs and Skills Summit next week, and they're sort of towing this careful line between giving a bit of a nod and wink to the unions that, yeah, we want pay to go up. At the same time, sort of Jim Chalmers has tentatively fallen behind the fallen behind the RBA Governor Philip Lowe, realising that, well, at the moment we can't have real wage growth because uh, cause that would be an even worse outcome when you've got inflation 6% heading to 8%. Global context is so important here. I mentioned before this stagflationary downturn in Britain, inf- inflation possibly getting as high as 13% according to the Bank of England. And of course, the US, as I mentioned in my introduction, is already in a technical recession. Europe's energy crisis, it does threaten to get worse during the northern winter. Joe, what does all that mean for Australia? Really uh, difficult economic backdrop. And often uh, we find that um, the global economy is, uh, the risks come more from emerging markets, but this time around it's really advanced economies. Now, Australia is a small open economy. Uh, You know, trade is a very big part of our economy. Uh, not just resources. At the moment, we've got rural exports that have also been very, very strong. So anything that risks uh, global growth is a risk to Australia. And at the moment, as you said, we've got Europe and the UK in stagflation, the US technically in recession, but arguably facing much weaker growth over 2023, whether or not it gets officially called a recession for the moment. But we've also got China slowing very, very Mm. rapidly. And just this week, starting to put a little bit of stimulus in, but not really very big numbers. Um, So the issue we've got there is China is our largest trading partner. It's already slowing of its own accord. But the US is China's largest trading partner. Um, And so I guess this is where the global value chain starts um, to to sort of show itself and and highlight just how interconnected the world is. So, look, we're not likely to see a global recession. They're actually very, very rare. But we are going to see a period of weaker growth. And that means for Australia, we're going to get less uh, boost from our external sector than we would have done otherwise which means we need more domestically generated growth, which is why getting this inflation under control, ensuring that wages, as John just talked about, don't get too high, that's how we're going to ride this cycle out. And and finally, John, what does all this mean, a soft or a hard landing for the Australian economy? <laughs> uh, well, as Joe said, it's it's been difficult forecasting over the last few years, and it always is difficult to get your crystal ball out. Look, I mean, the RBA Governor Philip Lowe has spoken about a narrow path to get inflation down but keep unemployment low. At You know, it's currently 3.4%. If we could keep it in the sort of low 4% range over the next couple of years as monetary policy is tighten, I think that would be a good outcome. Uh, you know, one of the big risks, though, is China's economy. Uh, I think that's the thing we really need to keep careful eye on because that's the one that we're much more plugged into. And it's a bit of a black box, China. We just don't really have a good grip on what's going on over there because of their closed system of government. That was John Keogh, columnist and economics editor for the Australian Financial Review, and Joanne Masters, chief economist at Baron Joey.
Well, we earlier heard from John Bolton, and I think it's fair to say it's widely believed his temperament, <laughs> it's the antithesis of the conventional diplomat, isn't it? So let's change the tune and hear about the often underestimated power of people-to-people diplomacy, or in this case, piano-to-people diplomacy. Now, a few years ago, it was in 2018, I had the great privilege of meeting Amber Hammond, an Australian classical pianist who talked about Girl Piano Truck. That's her project that takes her to remote parts of the world to play piano to those least expecting a concert. The idea came to me after a 25-year career of playing classical music in wonderful concert halls and theatres and, and fantastic venues where classical music is normally played. And that's something I don't take for granted and, and still very much love. But there was always something hugely special about having an occasion to play a concert in a school or in a retirement village or in an unexpected place and just seeing close up the faces of people who perhaps weren't used to going to a classical concert as regularly as your concert subscribers. And so I had this thought that I really wanted to take music further afield and rather than have audiences come to me, go to them and oh, find lovely. people. Yeah. So you deliberately tap into something in the audience. Yes. Clearly something more than day-to-day survival. Absolutely. I think that whilst there are so many millions of people existing in the world today who are focused on day-to-day survival and just trying to attain the basics to live a comfortable life, food, water, sanitation, I'm not in a position to be able to provide much help with that, but I certainly can give them some inspiration and try and uplift their souls with music. And I've seen that happen on a one-to-one basis. Seeing the faces of children who have never even seen or heard a piano before, when I start to play and they hear a piece of music that they've never heard before, Mm. but it resonates with them. And you see them, their reactions vary from shock to giggles to tears and there's nothing more emotional than seeing a child cry because they're hearing music and they don't even know why they're crying. What about the giant garbage dump on the outskirts of Manila? Yeah, 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 Piatus. So that's not your regular concert venue, is it? (laughs) It's far from it. Very far from it, yes. There's a bunch of rubbish from which, what, many scavengers scrape out a meagre income. Yeah. Why why did you go there? Oh, look, when I I read about it and heard about Piatus itself and, and I knew that there were so many children living there. Mm. Uh, I felt that it was a place where I definitely needed to take the piano in. I knew that it would be as much a surprise for them as it would be for me. And it was a truly incredible time for me to be able to play to them. I actually did the concert on the first day I went to the Philippines and it was so emotional and so moving. I ended up going back at the end of the trip and doing another one. And, you know, the the trucks come in from Manila at the end of the day at about 10 o'clock at night and that's when everyone gets to work including the children, and they just start sifting through the rubbish. That to me means that there's a place right there that needs a little bit of an element of magic and something to give some hope and, and escapism from everyday life. How do you operate? I mean, do you work with NGOs to make all this happen? No. One man band. (laughs) One woman band. And and, and the ideas for locations? That's quite easy. People Mm. often ask me that. But, I mean, for example, the Philippines idea came from when I went to my doctor's because I had to get a blood test and saw my pathologist, and she's Filipino. Her name is Iris. 
And she was telling me about her mother living in a very poor part of the Philippines and I was so touched by her story of her family, I thought, well, I need to go there. And so about three weeks later, I'd organised the trip and I went back in and told Iris I was visiting her home and she started crying and she said, thank you for what you're doing for my country. I hadn't done anything yet. But, you know, that's how. I just talk to people, word of mouth, people suggest things, people say, oh, my daughter's a volunteer here or... I just hear something and if it if it resonates, off I go. When you play in remote parts of the world, you know, places like East Timor mm. or, or Tanzania, for mm. instance, does it bother you that you perform and then that's it? It's uh, not a criticism of you at no, all. No, it's no, just, but no, do you consider how much question. better long-term projects could be? Of course. It's paramount for me to come away from the trip, absorb everything that I've done and, and think about all the interactions and sustainability is very important. So, for example, with East Timor, I was told by the government on the first trip there that uh, East Timor doesn't have a single piano in the country. Wow. And I thought that's... Bizarre, bizarre. To, to me, the idea of just not having a piano in a country. So Especially I did my trip. Especially since the liberation in 1999. Absolutely. Yeah. So I travelled from Dili to Bacau in the back of a truck and did my little performances and I came back to Australia and thought, well, we have to fix this. So uh, I approached a keyboard company and they gave me six and I took them back on a second trip and gave them to the schools. Wow. So they now have six. There were in, in the schools where there's uh, Catholic nuns who, who have good music knowledge and they're teaching the kids there. So that's that's important. Do you play from the classical canon or do you also explore some of the musical traditions or references from the country you're travelling to? Absolutely, both of those. Yeah. I am a classical pianist. That's my background. I do play world music as well. I've recorded a music of piazzola, so tangos, things like that. I'll play music that I know will click with the kids. So, for example, I'll always play Mozart's variations on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Uh. And every country, no matter what, the children will burst into song in their national language. It's just glorious. Hearing in the Philippines, hearing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star in Tagalog, which is their national language, was amazingly yeah. beautiful. Well, there's actually YouTube footage of you playing African songs and you have young Tanzanian men singing along. That's right. That yeah. was at a, Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I think I was playing Jumbo Buana and they got very, very excited and all started singing and dancing in that way yeah. that only they know how. It was amazing. Um, or I'll play the national anthem. I'll try and find a folk song. So in the Philippines, they've got a little song called Tong Tong Tong, which is a song about a crab. And I said to the kids, I don't know if you know this, and I started playing it slowly and their eyes widened and they all burst into song. And it's a little song like a nursery rhyme that you play and get faster and faster and faster and faster until people can't sing anymore. And they burst into laughter. So things like that, yes, it's vital because it, it breaks the ice. It creates no barrier between us. It doesn't matter if I can't speak their language. The music's doing it all. That was Amber Hammond, an Australian classical pianist, telling us about her project, Girl Truck Piano. That was on Between the Lines back in 2018. Well, that's it for the week, and remember to hear this or past episodes, including last week's exchange with Singapore's Kishore Mabobani on why Australia could become the Cuba of East Asia. Just go to the ABC Listen app, where you can download us for free. I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.